0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment
1: or rating in iTunes. The streets of Key West were stained with the blood of bright red cocks, resilient little creatures that persist despite the ongoing efforts of a community set on their extermination. On an island of eight square miles, there are over 2,000 roosters and hens, and at sunrise they are all audible. They crow in contests of pitch and length, with one triggering another in a sequence that can last well past brunch. They strut through streets and private gardens, their scarlet combs aimed defiantly at the sky. They plague sunbathers and diners, and as one did during a dinner I attended, they've been known to hop onto tables and to pluck from our plates what appealed to them, even sampling their own kind, grilled with pepper. The cocks arrived on Key West well before the Americans, coming with Cuban seafarers who also imported a habit of gambling. Back then, the cocks were rigged with razor blade necklaces, and when they fought, they were encouraged to peck out the eyes of their competition. An eyeless bird brought its slayer glory, its sponsor ignominy. Today, the bloodshed has shifted forms without suggesting any kind of reduction. The county of Monroe, Florida, pays two men to comb the streets of Key West in gray municipal uniforms, netting feral birds and slitting their throats with a tool akin to a letter opener. They are common sights during the daytime, particularly in the residential neighborhoods, where their nets can be heard scraping against the sidewalks. But the cocks are winning, and having overrun the southernmost point of the United States, they have begun encroaching upon the adjacent islands, which, linked by a highway of bridges, join the Florida Keys to the mainland. Key West Cox can be seen as far as 30 miles up the chain, past Sugarloaf Shores and Summerland Key, past the Jewfish Basin, Ramrod, and even the eye blink of Little Torch. Perennially undeterred, their golden feet carry them from shore to shore, traversing bridges, halting traffic, or less fortunately, not halting traffic. Even as the skies darkened over the keys, I smiled the first time I saw one on a highway bridge, smiled right up to the moment when another appeared in front of our rental, and my father neglected to stop, and the bird, terrified, hurried out of the way, its worthless wings propped out in a vain attempted flight that would fail to save it as it ducked under a partition and dropped down into the ocean. Helpless in the passenger seat, I kept quiet, my father's presence stifling the will to cry out, which rose in my throat as we pushed toward the last of the keys toward 2,000 idling targets. The poor Ukrainian at the front desk wore long sleeves, but the tattoo on his wrist was still visible. Etched into his tan were the words riches and bitches, not so different from the reasoning my ancestors had for fleeing Odessa for the promise of America. Of course, instead, what they had found there were tenements of the Lower East Side, crowded garment factories whose semi-automatic textile cutters promised weekly behandings. And of course, instead of riches or bitches, the poor Ukrainian had found himself at the front desk of the cottages at Sunset Key, placating my father. I don't care if you have to go in there with a goddamn flamethrower and root them out like refugees. It's my villa. I don't care if I'm late. I've already paid for it, and I want it now. Sir, the, the man at the front desk said, I'm sorry, but the cottage is no longer available. I'm a Starwood Platinum preferred guest. Does that mean anything to you? Heavy on the sacks, an unthinkable adult contemporary cover of What a Wonderful World glazed over the lobby. The Ukrainian let the music stick, its uncomfortable union of Louis Armstrong and Kenny G straining to sound natural. There's a honeymoon cottage, he said. If you'd like it, you can have it. As he made his final offer, the Ukrainian smiled at us, made an insinuation with his eyes. Bedroom jacuzzi? Romantic gift basket for two? My father pointed at me and at himself. Now, what exactly do you take me for, he asked. As almost always, my father got his way, and after the resort convinced a family of six to decamp for the honeymoon cottage, we entered ours, unpacking, I imagined, the displaced children in their new cottage, playing in the jacuzzi, unwrapping the romantic gift basket, and inevitably popping open the jar of sensual body chocolates. Devil's Island is the setting for Papillon, the seemingly endless 70s epic which follows Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman through their many failed escapes from a French penal colony. My father made sure that we reviewed the film before our trip to Sunset Key, which sits an eighth of a mile off the coast of Key West and prides itself on its pristine sand, which is raked and flattened and seldom scored by the feet of feral cocks. Already desolate, the beach becomes alien in evening, starlit and smothered by crashing waves. On our first night, I headed out to to wet my toes. Wait, my father said, setting his glass next to a basket of limes. Help me polish off this Bombay gin. This was something I was accustomed to. He would get me drunk so that I could leave him. It worked especially well when I had to drive somewhere. We didn't speak as he shoveled ice into a glass. In the heat, the frozen cubes split apart instantly, tinkling against opposite rims. He poured in the gin, then the tonic. A halved lime disappeared in his fist. He gave it a squeeze, then handed me the drink, which I didn't accept. You should have had a brother, he said. Would have named him Norman, Norman Osborne. He would have liked my gin and tonics. Looking out at the gulf at night, the clouds are usually all you can see. They take on this translucent silver that lends definition to an otherwise vacant tableau. The light makes it so that you can follow their trail through the sky for miles, see where they bulge and where they dissipate. But that night, the clouds were dark, the scene blackened. Don't stay out too late, my father shouted after me. We've got to get up early tomorrow, got to catch the ferry, and goddammit, it better not rain. Thank you.
2: It's called Center. Minutes later, when I walked into the widow's support group the second time, they were much more welcoming. I'm so sorry, a middle-aged woman on the left side of the circle stood up. We just thought, she must be looking for Alcoholics Anonymous across the hall. And then Emmy spoke up, a woman on the other side of the circle wearing a headscarf waved, and we realized, oh no. It's just that you're so young, Emmy said. The women closest to the door scooted apart from each other, and I pulled a folding chair between them. Everyone seated was elderly apart from the two who had spoken. Some looked worried. I was next anyway, Emmy said. She passed a plate of cookies from her lap to the woman beside her. My husband, Bill, was 25. He was killed at Kirkuk, which is in Iraq. He was a soldier there, and his vehicle was blown up while he was driving. She went on to detail how they found only his arm clutching his dog tags and sent her the tags. Emmy had been engaged in legal action to get the U.S. government to send her the arm as well. That was the arm he put around me, she said. Why shouldn't I want it? Some of the others were nodding. I wondered if there were parts she wouldn't want back. A toe, a kneecap. A few other women spoke, heart attack, lymphoma, and it was my turn. I'd been thinking about another way to tell my story. I'm Sarah. I'm 25. My husband Colin was 26. He was killed in a meth lab explosion. Pause, wait for the embarrassed looks. He was a DEA agent. The relief and pity followed immediately. One woman to my left wearing dark purple lipstick laughed loudly. The others didn't. Afterward, with everyone taking up their bags and putting on scarves to leave, the woman with the purple lipstick came up to me. "I like that," she said. "That was great. Here's mine. My husband sold drugs for Bayer Pharmaceuticals. Ha. Huh? My husband used to beat me at checkers." Before she turned to go, she put her hand on my wrist. "I'm Barbara." The group leader, Cheyenne, recommended that I check out an anger management class that met the next day because grief is made up of stages and we never know which will hit us next. Grief is also, I've been told, a slippery slope. It's a crumbling cookie. It's the monster under your bed. At the class, which met in the same community room partitioned from the basement of the Washoe City Episcopalian Church, an uncommonly short man led us in visualization exercises. When you feel yourself getting carried away, he said, picture the scene in front of you, name the objects. Sometimes there's one object that centers you, and you should try to bring that object with you, physically or in spirit, everywhere you go. Your centering object. He shared that his was a finger puppet of a badger, which had belonged to his father. He pulled it out and made it bob its head at us. Later there was question and answer. I raised my hand. I have trouble connecting with other people. He looked me over.
3: Understandable, he said. I want sex, baby. These were Ina's last words to me. She grabbed my face comically, grinning lewdly. She knew what the words meant. Ina was an only child, her father an alcoholic who'd left for the capital to undergo rehab years ago. She was a senior in high school, had a wild reputation, and thinking herself cosmopolitan, liked to show off the few English phrases she knew whenever I was around. Ina's from Zahmet Village, where there is no gas line. There, women must still cook over the fire, must keep it burning through the long winter nights. In Zahmet, all the girls braid one another's One another's hair after school and map out their futures as though they had any say and declare, I don't care who I marry, just so long as it's someone from a town that has a gas line. We were dancing, a circle of girls, at our friend Umida's birthday party. Umida's father, Islam, was deaf, but he could tell vivid stories with his hands. For his daughter's birthday dinner, he had grilled rabbit shashlik with eggplants and peppers and was feeling up all the girls surreptitiously as we danced. Aina twirled her skirts and lodged herself in the center of every circle of dancers, sneaking sips of vodka from the men's teacups when they were not looking. A week later, I was swe- sleeping over at Amida's house after a long day of swimming at the Hindukas Dam, wedged in the western-style bed between her and her sister Malika. Malika told me the news, as if an afterthought. You remember Aina dancing like a crazy girl at the party? She burned herself yesterday. She's all scrambled up inside. Stupid girl. But the doctors say she will be okay. They sent her home already. Islam woke us early the next morning, pantomiming that he'd just gotten news that Aina died in her sleep at 2 a.m. Malika, who had been hugging me throughout the night, wrung my body out, choking with silent sobs. I was her only friend. She told me everything. She'd come to me before. She told me I'm going to slit my wrists or drink vinegar. I could always talk her out of it. But this time, I was away in Marie. She told the boy who sold her the gasoline that she was going to kill herself with it. He just laughed. He thought it was a joke. We quickly washed our faces and got dressed. An Islama body must be buried within 24 hours. The funeral was, ar- the funeral was already underway. We took a d- taxi to Zakhmet in an ancient Lada that vibrated wildly when it went above 20 kilometers per hour. There was a crowd around Aina's family's house and male relatives milling outside. We entered into a dark room full of wailing women. Aina's tiny body was wrapped in a white sheet and laid out on a thin dusting of sand so the carpet wouldn't absorb the smell. Aina's mother, Sarai, was screaming over her daughter in an orgasm of grief. She howled a new lamentation with each incoming guest. Oh, Malika, Umida, if only you girls had been at home yesterday, you could have talked sense into her. Auntie Lachin, why didn't we take better care of her? Oh, Sveta, you were her favorite teacher. She'd always listen to you. The women were all weeping loudly into their scarves. Umida had handed me a napkin in which I hid my face, too shocked at first to cry. The fabric smelled of mutton. It must have been left over from a party. Malika was crying so hard the women had to give her some kind of pill to calm her down. Sarai kept lifting the sheet off her daughter as though to torture herself with a child's face, petting her hair and begging God to bring her back to life. I saw charred skin smudge in the shadows of the white linen. Oh, Ina, get up. Your friends are all here to see you. Ina's face was waxy and yellow. Oh, Ina, your heart was like glass. Look at me, Ina. The women threw little wads of money, significant amounts, onto Aina's body to help defray the cost of her death, which is, for some reason, what set off my weeping. The elderly women kept speaking of clothes Aina had just bought without ever getting to wear them, and a TV her mother bought that she had barely gotten to watch, as though that were the most tragic part of it all. Umida found this particularly sad and commented to me how expensive all the memorial dinners would be. The older women began kicking us out and had to drag Sarai bucking and bellowing so that they they could prepare Aina's body for burial. When we were outside, having displaced the mass of men slightly, the women began their gossip. For what now will Sarai live? I think she'll kill herself too, clucked Gulalik, whose brother prostituted his own wife to pay for his heroin habit. What a tragedy to die so young, Sveta shook her head. Sveta had to work two jobs to support two families. Her husband was an abusive alcoholic who kept his second family the next town over. I wondered what all the women who held their tongues were thinking, as though death were the saddest thing. I imagined all the humiliations Aina had saved herself from, and all those her mother would now have to endure. I worried for Sarai. A woman without a husband, a woman without any children, is not a person here. This is why most Turkmen families have as many children as possible. One is too precarious. One is untenable. We should endeavor to fill the world with as many hearts as possible on which to fall. Outside, Sarai was leaning on a woman whose features were lost in a sea of wrinkles, so well cast by both joy and sorrow equally, that one could not tell whether she was laughing or crying. Oh, Anna. Ina had always complained that her heart hurt. We took her to the doctor, put her on blood thinners, tried leeches. We were even going to have an operation scheduled. Why didn't I listen to her? Why didn't I realize that it was her other heart that hurt? We were feeding her aspirin for her heartbreak. The old woman shook her head, cooing to Sarai as she stroked her hair with large, knotty fingers— after a long pause, Sarai began again. Enna, tell me. Yes, Sir I love, ask. Why have our prayers gone unanswered? Thank you. We stopped at Burger King. It was one thirty in the morning,
0: and three or four other buses were already in the parking lot. The bus driver announced that we had half an hour to have a burger or smoke. The man sitting next to me took a cigarette from his jacket pocket and filed off the bus. I watched from my window as he walked across the parking lot, his body glowing neon under the Burger King sign. I hated the taste of unbrushed teeth. I fumbled for my toothbrush but couldn't find it in the dark. The bus was lurching violently, but I thought it had stopped. I couldn't tell up from down anymore. Everything was melting into everything else. I tried not to hurl as my head capsized into the seat next to me. The man who was sitting beside me came back onto the bus. He seemed shy, almost apologetic, For having woken me. I mumbled sorry and turned the other way, resting my head against the window. The coolness of the glass was sharp on my cheek. It felt good. The driver announced that it was about two AM and we were I don't remember what else he said. I wanted to throw up but the window couldn't open. I didn't want to hurl on a bus. Then we started moving. I swallowed repeatedly until the glass got softer. In my dream, there were flecks of green, dark, punctuated green, like running through a forest with the sun directly above. But there were ten suns, and I shot them down one by one with a bow and arrow until there was only one left. So I raised my bow and aligned my body with the tension of the string, but I couldn't release. I couldn't move at all. My skin was tingling, capillaries punctured by tiny arrows fired by flies. Panic boiled between my shoulder blades and into my throat. I couldn't see any flies. I could only see the last sun still flaming and spinning through the green. That sinking feeling where everything goes numb, but it's a numbness you feel when you start to yawn and your ears vibrate and for a second you hear nothing but that sound. The man sitting next to me was running his hand up my thigh. He was breathing hard. I couldn't breathe at all. I was little again, on my knees or my neighbor pressed something into my throat, blocking my trachea so I couldn't inhale. He told me to close my eyes, tied a piece of cloth around them to make sure, and to open my mouth for a surprise. He said I could only feel it with my tongue and not use my teeth, otherwise I would break skin and take what it was, and that would be cheating." But I couldn't breathe, I yanked my head back and he laughed, took off my blindfold and held up a persimmon in his hand. This is what you should have guessed. And now it was happening again as will happen again and again forever. The man's hand was sliding under my dress, I could feel a rash erupting where he touched, ripples of shivers skimming across me. My vision was dimming, fuzzy dots puncturing my eyelids like microscopic arrowheads. My tongue was heavy, chained to the roof of my mouth. No, it wasn't a fruit, you asshole. How dare you make me think I'm crazy when you're hurting me? My body convulsed and pushed the man's hand off of me. He should have just let it fall, pretended he was asleep. But he was manic from lust or simply scared. He pushed his fingers against my panty line. His knuckles were chapped marbles, fumbling through the lace of my underwear. My inner thighs coiled like ropes. His eyes are watery and opaque, like oysters and hardened shells. I wondered if he was crying, or blind, or both. But of course he couldn't see me. I wasn't even there. I was drowning in the green flecks, the color permeating my sinuses and lungs and coating everything with the waxy taste of salt. The last sun was still spinning, but now it was fraying, unraveling, spinning itself apart like yellow yarn hair of a doll in the washing machine. Thank
4: you. (laughs) So this is called Carolina. Carolina collapsed onto a bench, tired from the long drive, and began to wait. A concrete path stretched endlessly north and south, to the west of the slab that was Pacific, and to the east, empty condos. In the distance, the tinny sound of a Beach Boys ripoff mingled unpleasantly with the clack, clack, clack of a paint-shipped roller coaster. Most people strolled and lazed in various states of undress, most of them burnt, all of them burning. Mission Beach in July wasn't ideal, but it, was, it wasn't the worst place in the world either, not compared to some of the shitholes Carolina had played, a bunch of bars in Eureka came to mind. So did the entirety of Bakersfield. She struggled out of her T-shirt and let the sun warm her bikini-clad body. If nothing else, this ship could be a victory against tan lines. She slouched down into the bench, and c- causing her belly to pouch into a frown that hung over her cutoffs. Carolina stared at it and tried to suck it in. It worked a little, but not as much as she hoped. To be 20 again. To be 20 forever. She wiped the sweat already pimpling from her forehead and brushed it against her shorts. Where the hell was this guy? At the moment, more than anything else in the world except maybe playing the Hollywood bull, Carolina wanted to be high, really f***ing ripped. For most of her life, Carolina had stayed away from all types of smoke, wasn't worth the risk to her voice. But six or seven years ago, after a show at this place called the Brandon Iron in San Bernardino, a busboy, Juan or something, who she thought was kind of good-looking even though he was way shorter, had proposed to go smoke in an alley. At first she had hesitated. Her voice. But he had these eyes. So they got pretty high and she got a little giggly and they made out for a while. She loved the way he had to stand on his toes the entire time. Carolina really never saw Javier again or whatever, but she had, this, but she had sort of become a smoker. And it had started out casual and recreational, mostly weekends, Friday, Saturday, then Sunday, then Wednesday too, then just about every day. She couldn't hold the notes like before, and the high C she used to hit every time sounded more like a C flat. That hurt a little, but hurt a little less all the time. She liked the way it made her rem- It made it hard to remember all the 10-hour drives to mostly empty venues. Hard to remember the hotel rooms with two single beds, sweeping shower heads, and Gideon Bibles cowering in their bedside drawers like possums. Hard to remember all the mornings she woke up with bruising headaches and no recollection of the night. Carolina liked that it made her feel all right about things, maybe even a little happy. And it wasn't addictive, not like alcohol had been. It It was almost as good as singing on stage, and it was a hell of a lot less work to get. Hey, Carolina swiveled slightly to adjust the sandpaper voice and hand which had entered into her her periphery. Connected to the hand was a leathery, muscular arm attached to an equally leathery, muscular torso, which in turn was attached to a long neck, leading to a face that was on the verge of being gaunt. Blonde hair, dark with wetness, tangled past his shoulders. He smelled like salt water. You're kale, right? Jeffrey's girl? Carolina clenched her teeth and studied his ugly face for a second, trying to decide if he was dumb or an she took the hand and gave him a firm shake. It's Carolina, and I'm not his girl, but yeah, I buy from Jeffrey. He grinned and sat down next to her. Right on, sorry I'm a bit late. Name's Steve. Carolina sat up a little and scooted away from his dampness. Steve had a terrible smile, but you could tell it was authentic. No one would ever flash an ugly smile like that unless it was the sign of honest-to-God genuine pleasantness. His earnestness annoyed Carolina. She knew people like Steve. Their energy tired her. He took a bag of cigarettes and an almost empty book of matches from his fanny pack, stuck a cigarette between his lips, and went to work on the matches. So what brings you to San Diego, Carol? Carolina, here to do a show. Two hours from a small gig in a smaller bar, hardly a show at all. More like live background music. They didn't even have a stage. But she had a couple months worth of rent that she'd put off paying, and her landlord was getting ready to evict her. Again and the prospect of living out of her car was a lot less romantic than all those movies made it out to be. Carolina had done some math on a napkin when she filled her tank in Long Beach and figured this gig would get her through the, at least mid-August. More if she played her cards right. Not bad. So far, Steve had broken two of his remaining matches. Fuck these pieces of shit. Hey, man, that's pretty cool. What's the name of your band? I don't have one. I sing by myself. Just you alone on stage? Steve finally managed to light a cigarette. He smiled at his success. Took a long drag and let it ooze lazily out of his mouth and nose. I was in a band once a couple years ago. For about five months. A punk rock sort of thing called the Wet Rats. We kicked some ass around town, man. Once we, did, once we were an opener for, at a halfway good joint called Soma. It was a converted movie theater or something. I played drums. Made some weird friends that way. Especially this guy named Mark who tried to do, uh, sell me heroin and get me to do it with him. But I said, fuck that. Give me a cold beer or some and I'm good. Mine was up on methadone for like 20 years and that slips like heroin but with a different name one time i saw mark shoot up between his toes it was fucked up steve took it steve shook his head took another drag and make a choking and made a choking phlegmy chuckle um,
5: and it is entitled my sister my beautiful sister the funeral was one of those lazy grim affairs had for the truly old for those who had been bound to die sooner or later for over a decade and who have few peers left to attend A minister read words from the Bible he himself had selected, his standard funeral fare. The niece, phoning him up from Hartford, had asked for as much. The departed, an old woman, had never married, never had any children, and so the nieces and nephew handled her death, and they had only bothered because they thought they should, because no one else would do it, and because she was their father's sister after all, his only sibling, and him old and infirm himself. The minister knew the type. They looked hassled to be at their aunt's funeral in the dead of a New England winter, their fidgeting children in sneakers, because no one bought children dress shoes, not when they just grew out of them. The nieces, nephew, and their spouses were focused mostly on keeping the kids quiet. One father discreetly handed off pieces of a Hershey bar throughout the service. After the parents shuffled the children to their feet and one of the nieces, Cassie, went to wheel her father up the church's aisle... Cassie guessed she was now responsible for her father because she hadn't bothered to bring either her husband or children up from New Canaan. She had felt like a loser from the moment she had entered the church and saw that both John and Wisteria had brought their entire broods. She reached down and touched the handles of her father's wheelchair and thought what an ironic reversal of her wedding day it was to push her father up the church's aisle. She began to push the chair... But she heard a sound, the sound of weeping, and she thought, for a wild second, one of her nieces or nephews, but then realized it was her father. She turned to face him, and she saw that the old man sobbed, tears running down his face and plummeting off his great hooked nose. He said, his eyes balled up into his skull so that he couldn't even see her. My sister, my beautiful sister. Oh, Dad, Cassie said. She patted his forearm. I'm sorry, she said. We all loved Aunt Charlotte. No, no, he said, his eyes open now, his face a quaking continent. Cassie was shocked. She didn't think her father cared much for his sister, who had visited only occasionally when she was growing up, and whom her father had always rolled his eyes at and said, Charlotte, like his sister, was a ridiculous proposition not to be considered. No, no, you don't understand, he said. None of you understand. She was my sister. And he began to cry again and repeat, my sister, my beautiful sister, Cassie continued to pat her father's forearm and signaled over his shoulder for Wisteria or John for a little backup. She had never been particularly close to her father. Wisteria had been his favorite, vivacious and musical, and he and John had always been able to talk about baseball. My beautiful sister, he repeated, still sobbing. Cassie sighed. She should have expected something like this. It seemed her father always liked to make things harder for her. She didn't know what sister her father was remembering because her aunt Aunt Charlotte had never been attractive, nowhere close to beautiful. She, too, had had the great hooked nose, and she had been stout, with varicose veins and a swollen melon stomach. Cassie remembered her as a woman in a lemon-colored two-piece, drinking a tab and reading a gossip magazine. She occasionally brought around boyfriends who no one liked, who called the nieces sugar, and twitched their bare legs with strands of dune grass. Wisteria had finally disengaged from her husband, a weasley accountant, very impressed with himself and his leased BMW, and made her way over to Cassie and her father. "'What happened?' she said to her sister, her well-plucked eyebrows raised. "'He's just a little upset,' Cassie said. "'It is his sister's funeral, after all.' She felt as if Wisteria were trying to say, "'You always set him off,' with her arched voice, her hand on her hip. Wisteria bent down next to her sister and took her father's hand. "'Daddy,' she said, "'what's wrong? "'Are you all right?' Clearly not, her sister said. He's clearly upset. Her father did not acknowledge Wisteria. He simply repeated, my sister, my beautiful sister. That's all he's been saying, Cassie said. Maybe we should just get him out of here. Daddy, Wisteria tried again. Daddy, why don't you tell me what's wrong? Her father continued to cry and did not respond. You might as well go back over to Derek, Cassie said to Wisteria, feeling suddenly defensive of her father. I'll get Dad out of here. Wisteria shrugged and said, thanks, I'm sure he's just tired. Their father had been in poor health for years now. He lived in a home, selected because it was 45 minutes from all of them, and now he spoke little. On visits, he would stare out the window, and they would try to ignore his silence. She bent down in front of her father one more time. Poor dad, she said to him, remembering how he used to say to her or Wisteria, poor sweetheart, when something didn't go their way. He cried still, a sort of silent weeping, his head slumped to the side. But this time, when she touched his arm, he said, his face relaxing and looking his daughter straight in the eye, "'She was the only one left who knew me as a little boy,' he said. "'She was the only one left who knew me my whole life. "'She used to remind me whenever I saw her, she would say, "'You were just a little peanut then, and I hated you "'because I wanted to be the baby.' "'Cassie looked at her father and said, "'Oh, Dad, poor Dad,' and she thought, "'he was a younger man once, my father, "'who carried me to the park on his back "'and painted our garage green that one summer "'and came to visit me when I was first married, "'right after Mom died. "'He was right, of course, her father.' He had once been young, and then older, but still young, and now he was old, and she didn't know how that just happened to a person, not any more than he did. Thanks.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.